Welcome back. This is another Lunk Communicate. This is number seven, and it is January 8th, 2009. I am Jackson Meredith, and I am joined by... Brian. Andrew. Monty. This new year is young, but there's already plenty of blood on American hands again. The outrage of the week, of course, is the bombardment and invasion of the Gaza Strip by Israel. Now, obviously, this is nothing particularly new or isolated in the history of the Middle East. I mean, basically, for the last several years, the Gaza Strip, home to one and a half million Palestinians, has been described by most expert commentators on the matter as the world's largest open-air prison, or, in the words of William Bloom, the world's largest concentration camp. You have essentially one and a half million people with inconsistent sources of food, of electricity, of, of basic sanitation. When their children are accepted to foreign universities, Israel won't let them go. Essentially have an entire strip of land that has been walled off by the Israeli military. And as Americans, we're, we're sort of complicit in this whole thing because... America provides so much support for the state of Israel. Billions of dollars. Supplying weapons and money. As of 2006, independent reporter John Pilger noted that the United States has given the state of Israel $140 billion. That aid is primarily military and always has been. So why is there this American support of the Israeli state... What interest do we have in the region? Maybe we should go way back to the beginning. Where did all this begin? Why is all this happening now? The nation of Israel, the modern nation of Israel, was founded in 1948, primarily by European refugees of the Holocaust. The general impression that's always been given was that it was restitution for the crimes of Nazi Germany Although, I mean, you have to wonder, Palestine was a British colony. Now, when the British were one of the primary powers that fought and defeated Nazi Germany, and when Palestinian people enlisted in the British army and fought the Nazis, why did the British make restitution for the Holocaust? Surely those European Jews could have been much more comfortable in some of that posh scenery country in southern Germany, you know, where there's actually water and fertile land, certainly that would have been a much more appropriate restitution, don't you think? So, why? <laughs> Answer the question that you just asked. Because I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously Zionist Jews have sort of seized on it as an excuse to sort of re-establish a holy state in the Middle East on their old holy land, despite the fact that, that you were reading to me right before we went on the air here, Brian, I mean, about how Arabs have... Yeah, Arabs have been the the primary population of, of Palestine for 1,200 years. The Jewish takeover of the land didn't start largely until when the UN said that they could have the land for their own use. In 1948. In 1948. And then there was a lot of expansion that took place 
right after that time. The, the, the six, the, and of course they seized a lot of land. They started seizing land beyond the initial UN mandate almost immediately. And this process really sort of got a steroid boost in 1967 after the Six Days War, which is when we see the beginning of the occupation of the remaining Palestinian lands of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. If you look at a map that shows the original UN agreement for the Jewish settlement, and then you look at the amount of land today that the Arab Palestinians have, it's Israel has expanded probably four times the size of the original agreement where it's taken over almost all of the all of the land there and dispossessed a lot of people. So why is this part of the world so incredibly important? Well, just and why how why has it been so easy for these people to just come in and take it over and despite the fact that really there isn't really all that much of a reason for them to go there. It's mostly been pushed by Western interest, hasn't it? I mean, it's funny, Timmy, you know, in the traditional sort of analysis of these things, you sort of wonder if there's natural resources at stake. Specifically, in the case of Israel, that's not really the case. Israel has very little mineral wealth. There's really no oil under Israel's sand. I mean, and it's the point where, you know, you know the farmland really isn't that great, and really... Water is a rare and precious resource there to be fought over. I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of bizarre in the first place to think that people would be fighting over such a worthless clump of sand. But of course, I mean, it does fit into the the broader imperial strategies of the great powers. I mean, we we back up a little bit, go back to 1948 when the British essentially ceded their colony of Palestine or a segment of it to the Jewish refugees of the Holocaust. I mean, and the, the strategy was obviously they were sort of trying to establish sort of a Western beachhead. I mean, the, the British, who had been the dominant imperial power throughout the Middle East for a hundred years, well, after World War II and after the pounding they took from Germany, they realized they weren't going to be able to maintain that empire any longer. They weren't strong enough to maintain their global empire. And so, I mean, the first thing they did, I mean, obviously, I mean, the idea of seeding Israel as a beachhead, basically if the Middle East fell out of order and stopped doing proper business with its Western masters, the the Israelis would sort of hold a beachhead long enough for the Western militaries to zoom in and retake order. They wouldn't have to reconquer the entire colony. Obviously a beach landing is a very expensive military maneuver if you don't already have someone holding on to it for you. Well, not even just uh, as far as expense... Just uh, morale is uh, is an expense in and of itself. How many people you lose on a beach landing? I mean, obviously, if you've seen any American World War II movies, you think about the, the high human cost of trying to take the Normandy beaches in France from those German machine gun turrets. And obviously, I wouldn't expect that to be a high concern of of the powers that be, how many people are killed, but... It makes it hard to fight a war, like it's hard now to fight the Iraq War. I mean, this is this is all sort of British imperial planning, and of course, I mean, the agreement that the British struck very quickly after World War II was essentially to hand over the keys of their empire to the United States in exchange for remaining as the sort of junior partner or the right-hand man in the syndicate. 
And so essentially these, these British imperial agreements became American imperial agreements almost immediately. And I mean, the strategy, I mean, the, the British strategy through the 19th century, and certainly the, the immediate continuation into American imperial strategy, I mean, going back to what, what Monty was sort of hinting at earlier, has to do with the oil in the Middle East, not specifically in Israel. Israel is more of a strategic concern, but obviously the oil under Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, and the others. Obviously, it's it's not the world's only source of oil, and it's not even necessarily the world's most prolific source of oil, but Middle Eastern oil is uniquely situated as being in rather high quantities that are very easy to extract and exploit. I mean, as opposed to, I mean, like the tar sands of Canada or Venezuela, which aren't nearly as profitable. Well, also, they just don't want, they, they don't want that area to fall out of their mm -hmm. power. Because when, when you do that, then you actually, you compromise your power, and then all of a sudden you risk actually not being able to dominate the world completely, 100%. And of course, the, the whole idea there that you're sort of getting at, I mean, it's, it's not even necessarily about having access to oil. Of course, I mean, Amer the American economy is powerful enough to buy oil from whoever it wants. It's not about having access to oil. It's about having control over oil because, I mean, to this day, I mean, as much as renewable energies are on the horizon, to this day, around the world, Petroleum is the lifeblood of industry. And I would compare this to the housing market. It's not necessarily what you're going to do with property. It's who can't have the property. You're controlling the resources. You're controlling the property. You're controlling what people are able to do. You know, if you look at the, the American occupation of Iraq, I think that has a lot to do with, with Israel. With um, you know, it's a, it's another type of support that America has has lent to Israel by agreeing to attack potential enemies in uh, in the Middle East. So you can kind of see how the two wars that are that are playing right now, or the two conflicts, are are both related to the to this Israeli state. And a lot of times, there's really a direct connection to. I mean. Especially since 1967, the Jews, I mean, the Israeli Jews have been a leading proxy army for American imperial interests in the Middle East. I mean, they've, they even had a hand, I mean, you, talk about, you mean, even look at things like the Iran-Contra scandal, which plagued the Reagan administration in the 80s when they were selling, I mean, you know, the Israelis had a role in, in, in laundering those in, in illicitly transferring those arms to the Iranians. They were a middleman in that as well. So you're saying they're basically going along the same agenda as allies. When the United States gives weapons to Israel, they're kind of giving weapons to themselves. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just... I mean, obviously, to, to maintain an empire, you need your share of, of well-armed killers basically, and the Israelis have proven they're very, very good at playing that role, and they've, I mean, they've been, they've been sort of anointed as sort of a regional power in the region, they're sort of almost like a, a viceroy of the empire. Fighting the evil terrorists, <laughs> apparently. Where, where, do, okay, so Hamas comes along, and how do they start? Where do they come from, and why are they so dangerous to everybody everywhere? Mm. 
Well, I mean, what, and this, this, this sort of ties back to Israel again. I mean, a lot of the Islamic extremism in the Middle East has actually been invented in response to Israeli atrocities and Israeli massacres. It's, it's true for Hamas in the Palestinian-occupied territories, and it's also true for the Hezbollah of Lebanon. And that, that sort of goes back into some of the, the battles during the Cold War over control of the Middle East, obviously... I mean, it was in the Soviet national interest, of the, in the, the Soviet Union, to promote, at least, I mean, to at least endorse. I mean, not necessarily, they didn't necessarily arm to the same degree that the United States armed its side, but certainly supporting and endorsing a kind of secular Arab nationalism, which obviously, nationalism is, is completely out of the question for the Arab peoples because it means... I mean, if it's allowed to prosper, it means that they might make their own decisions about their oil, and that's obviously not acceptable to American imperialism. That's why the democratically elected president of Iran, Mossadegh, was overthrown by the CIA in 1953. That is completely out of the question. But I can understand personally why people would be angry. Just when looking at the, the amount of land that's been lost to the state. So when people people talk about um, aggression by Hamas and aggression by Palestinian groups, it just doesn't make sense to me because from what I know, it looks like all the aggression is being perpetrated by the Israeli side. The Israelis aren't losing vast majorities of their land. They're They're the ones that are dividing uh, Palestinians and, and taking land. And then when there is any sort of uh, attack on Israel in response to this, there's always this disproportionate um, bombardment, and it often involves killing large numbers of civilians. Not only that, but I'd, I'd like to know how people would feel if someone kicked you out of your home maybe killed your family, put you in a concentration camp and bulldoze your home, your storefront, everything that you have. I I don't think people would um take very kindly to that. And we'll we're sort of we'll sort of we started the show obviously talking about the the siege in Gaza right now. We'll sort of start to tie it back here. I mean I mean again, I mean the Gaza Strip is basically a, a concentration camp or a prison for its one and a half million residents. I mean, according to uh, Anna Baltzer, who is is an is a peace activist and expert in the region. I mean, in poverty in the Gaza Strip is actually in excess of eighty percent. Over half of the population is dependent on food handouts from the United Nations. Unemployment is rampant, and Israel's been blocking a lot of that aid. I mean, even despite an Israeli court order calling for the Gaza Strip to have access to the fuel imports it needs to have some semblance of life. The Israeli army actually continues to block these fuel quantities and actually only allows 15% of the fuel actually needed by the Gaza Strip in at any particular time. The result of this is that, again, according to Anna Baltzer, you know, there's garbage piled in the streets because they don't have any, they don't have, they don't have, I mean, they don't, they can't fuel the garbage trucks that haul the stuff away. There's garbage piled in the streets and, quote, 15 million gallons of raw or partially treated sewage 
going into the sea every day. So where, I mean, this is this is just squalor. Where does this justification come from? From like, from like people who who are sort of defending Israel and like the the officials and the people who support it who are saying we need to de- we need to defend against these attacks. And I want to under I want to understand the point of view that somebody who would be supportive of Israel is coming from because I it, it seems illogical to me what are do they just are they just unaware of the history or what I mean I mean you talking about sort of just the the American Joe Sixpack who thinks this or uh well the people people who are actually convinced and you know not not mm-hmm. people who are just well I mean, I think that are you, are you asking about the the people who set the policy or the people in the street though I'm talking about the people who are like those two guys who are at the protest that we were at mm-hmm. <laughs> so average show someone want to quickly describe we're talking that? about the man on the street General here go ahead Brian. Yeah. well I think that there's this common belief within the American population that Arabs people in the Middle East that are doing all of this, this uh, they see perpetrating violence. They think that these people are just religious zealots. And, it, and their religion has inspired them to just bomb people for whatever reason. And it's not the case. It's always, when there, when there is violence being used, it's in response to something. Like in, in, in uh, Israel and Palestine conflict, when, when uh, Hamas or whatever group is attacking Israel, it's always... In response to something that's been done to them, it's it's not like there's just people over there that are just wanting to kill people for no reason whatsoever. Without getting too far into the sort of cycle of reprisal stuff that you're sort of getting at, I mean that's sort of a that's sort of a morally murky area. But there's also it's just as far as as far as these these counter protesters counter protesters we encountered on Monday and again on Wednesday they were back out there, but. Uh, I mean that's that's sort of what the media feeds you too, though. I mean the, the media doesn't say anything else. The media doesn't give any context, and so you don't really have any reason to believe anything other than the fact that you know the Arabs are these one-dimensional, bloodthirsty barbarians that they're made out to be. And you don't get these numbers in the media. You don't know that a million and a half people are being basically held in a concentration camp, and people. I would say to talk to go a little further with what Brian is talking about think that well the bad people are just um just getting put in prison you know mm-hmm. the same sort of thing if they're not doing anything wrong they don't have anything to worry about sort of mentality and i mean obviously there's there's a very cozy relationship here too i mean as as in with the sort of the corporate masters behind the republican party counting on a few platitudes to the religious right to have their full support in the elections obviously I mean, evangelical Christians are the largest Zionist base in the world. Yeah, yeah how... So, I mean, obviously there's no... I have there's seen... No, there's no end of supply of of apologists for the state of Israel and, from that sector. And the reason why they support the state of Israel is for really... I mean, if you want to talk about religious zealots, you don't have to look anywhere but this country. I mean, you have... What you're talking about is evangelical Christians, and they have an interest in Israel because they want to fulfill doomsday prophecy. Well, how I mean, how really true is that? Does George Bush really believe that? We're, we're not we're not talking about George Bush here. We're talking about the third of the American population that has supported him no matter what. But I do think the corporate business interests and the ruling class—they're all very 
cozy with that propaganda mm. because it furthers their ends. Mm. I think I think they're. I mean, it, it sounds so crazy, so it's easy to be incredulous. But I do really think that there is a large number of people that view the formation of a Jewish state in that area as something that needs mm. to happen for the Messiah to come back. Well, I, re- I really doubt that it's that, that is really what's behind the ruling classes reasons for doing that. I don't I don't I mean their religion their religion for for whatever uh facade they put up for, you know, Christian or, you know, even Jewish or whatever their religion is money. Yeah, well they have it's money and they want their money and they're 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 they're, they're going to adjust their beliefs yeah. accordingly. And it, it it just so happens that this whole Israel and Jesus will come back thing is is, is well, it fits very well with the fur, furthering the agenda of this imperialism. I mean, yeah, yeah, I can believe that you know maybe crazy Bob, the, the insane Christian, believes that. Yeah, exactly. And the people in power, I mean, they they are interested in Israel for logistic reasons, for resource reasons, but they use these this this population of evangelicals to their advantage see the way i look at it you don't even have to be a super crazy christian you just have to have these views enough to believe that the apocalypse is going to happen and you should leave it up to people who are smarter than you to the authorities uh to to work with this to the people that you believe in your priests to tell you what to believe but again this is a very this is a very cozy and very convenient political alliance between, obviously, the, the imperial planners in Washington who are making all the decisions and the quarter or third of the American people who, are sub, who subscribe to these religious delusions who will support them unquestioningly because they seem to be on the same page. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously when, when Israel is your beachhead of imperial domination, you want to see them in power with all necessary weaponry forever. And obviously if the religious people think you need to have a a religious state in Israel to satisfy the end times, they have no problem giving billions of dollars of weapons a year to a mass murdering regime forever. Now talking about the propaganda, we talked about the the carrot for the evangelical Christians, but the stick is the the concept of anti-Semitism. Go on. Well, if you don't support the uh, Zionist regime, the Israeli force, and the murders that are going on, then the occupation, the occupation that makes you anti-Semitic, and people will use that against you and call you anti-Semitic if you don't support the regime or the actions they're taking. And of course, that's, that's, that's an attempt to sort of conflate antagonism with the Israeli position with a, a matter of racism. Of course, I mean, obviously... My my number one talking point on the matter is always, but the Palestinians are also a Semitic people. Yeah. So it's it's you can't really throw around anti-Semitism. Well, it's kind of funny because I mean the in 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 Israel itself among the people there there are some big movements against what's going on, isn't there? Oh yeah, there, there's there's demonstrations in Israel that are protesting the actions that are being taken right now. I mean, there's a lot of groups that don't support what the government has been doing. Oh, are I mean, they I, are they anti themselves? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there've been there've been commentators who have noted that you know, the anti-occupation protest movement 
is more robust within Israel, at least per capita. Obviously, there's not a lot of people living in Israel. At least per capita, it's as robust as anywhere in the world, precisely because it's hard to paint a bunch of Jews as being anti-Semitic. Right, and you can't really draw it amongst religious lines either because there are fundamentalist Jews that will burn Israeli flags. (laughs) So the main problem I see... It, with America being complicit in this whole thing, it's just that they're. You're right in that the average person doesn't have a real consciousness about the subject. They don't understand what's going on. They just, you know, the dehumanizing thing that's been done, where, where Arabs are just viewed as crazy, uh, suicide bombing. Well, there's this pr- people. There's this, I mean, that, that, that's prevalent. Like prevalent I, belief that somehow Israel is just it's just there and it's minding its own business. And oh yeah. my God, it's the victim. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Andrew was talking about you know uh, the stick of anti-Semitism, which is, which is kind of a rhetorical stick. But I think the bigger stick, if you don't want to take the carrot of you know Israeli end times crap, you don't even have to be religious in the slightest to take on this stick. And this is the stick of, if you don't let them fight the crazies over there, they're going to bring the fight over here. Well, and they're the- going to, you know, we have. You know, it's this. You know, it's this. You know, it's, it's the sort of the same crap they were talking about in the lead up to the Iraq wars. Is you know, we'll fight the terrorists on their ground, or they'll bring the fight home it, to us. And then they back up this fear mongering by showing uh, Arabs burning American flags right. and things like that. And look, they they and do want to kill us, but it, but the the reasons, the legitimate reasons that they have for being angry at the United States is just this this mm. unconditional. Uh, aid that is given to Israel and in weapons. I mean, the the bombs that are dropping on the Palestinians right now, killing hundreds of people in the market, is are American bombs. A lot, most of this weaponry that is being used is American weaponry. And to back this up a little it's bit, all given to them. the way I see it, we're talking about black hatting Arabic people. They're basically modern day savages. Mm-hmm. They're going to come down from the hills and they're going to kill your family. We have to go kill them first. Aren't some of the weapons that that like Hamas and them are using aren't they like from the U.S.? <laughs> Possibly. I mean, United States has sold weapons to almost every group on the planet. I mean, we I'm sure there's Iran, a lot of we obsolete weaponry around there that they just haven't gotten around to I mean, using. The United States has sold sold weaponry to Iran. We sold them to Iraq. And so really, so so really, we're just sort of instigating this whole goddamn mess. Well, I mean, it's, and it, you know, obviously, we've been focusing on Israel, and it deserves most of the attention. But I mean, this is, I mean, this is a consistent imperial policy against promoting democracy in the Middle East. Obviously, we overthrew the democratic government of Iran because they wanted to nationalize their oil. Big, big mistake. In their place, we, of course, we reinstalled the Shah, who was one of the most hated tyrants on the planet. I mean, we. I mean, we had a hand in installing Saddam Hussein's predecessor to Iraq and then bolstering Saddam Hussein when it was his turn. There's been, you know, a, you know there's major diplomatic and, so, diplomatic and military aid to Saudi Arabia, which is one of the least democratic nations on the planet. I mean, it's yeah. just onward, continuous. There's a steady, consistent pattern here. Well, there's really no... Uh consistency in our, our supporters of dictators other than how it benefits our state and ruling class policy. Uh, I mean, that's that's the talking points that the right wing in this country uses. They say, you know, we're going over there, we're going to Iraq to 
promote democracy. We're going over there to give these people democracy. Don't these people deserve a chance at democracy? But if you look at what's actually happening, these people are not, they're not going over there to set up democracy. They're going up to, over there to set up client states, puppet governments that they can control. They're not setting up democratic governments. And in, and in fact, when you look at the history, there's a whole list of democratically elected leaders and governments that the United States has either intentionally and overtly or covertly undermined or just gotten rid of it. You know, assassinations and, that, and everything. And obviously this has happened all over the world, but the bulk of these instances are in the Middle East, which we've been talking about as that's an obvious... I mean, that's been considered a strategic... I mean, that's considered the strategic battleground for world domination for 150 years, and we're just continuing that. And, of course, the other major region is Latin America, which we've considered our backyard and our property going back to the Monroe Doctrine almost 200 years ago. The propaganda is often fairly shallow, though. They may mask it in freedom and democracy, but they'll say, we're going to do this for our country's interest, as if the country's interest is everyone's interest rather than just the people making a shitload of profits. Deceitful reasons for war are sort of a historical universal. I mean, you know, I think even Noam Chomsky has mentioned how, you know, when when Hitler was conquering Western Europe, it wasn't under the pretext of, well, you know, we want your country. Sorry, bye. Yeah. It was, you know, it was under, you know, propping up, you know, the the Vichy French regime, or whether they were invading Poland. It was about saving these countries from Jewish or communist. Terrorism. Or liberating them. I, th- I think we need to, before we get off the subject, we need to put somewhere on the website or on our forum, we need to put somewhere the list of, <laughs> of leaders, democratically elected leaders and governments that have been um, opposed by the United States government and overthrown or opposition groups were funded. And also how Islamic extremist groups were really propped up by the United States government and how they served our interests and how that's come back to obviously that could, I think that could be a whole other show. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you want to. I mean, we're we're already at the midpoint of this show. This is really a lively topic here. We are listening to Lunk Communique number seven, and we are talking about what Israel is doing in Gaza right now and how that fits into decades of imperial planning. And I actually want to follow up on what Brian was sort of saying there. Is you know we've really our empire and our empire's proxies have really had a key role in creating the Islamist boogeyman. And, I mean, without getting sort of too technical about it, I mean, obviously, I was was mentioning a little earlier, I mean, you know, the the rise of secular nationalism, which was the first major trend in rebellion in the Middle East, and, of course, that was smashed. I mean, it's almost a matter of, uh, you you know, the way human cultures can sort of evolve almost under Darwinian principles is a matter of artificial selection. You know, where you had, you know, Islamist groups rising up alongside secular nationalists. And in the first place, a lot of times, the United States or its proxies would fund the jihadis, in part because they could sort of motivate them to turn against sort of Soviet sympathizers, oh, the, the atheist communists, yeah, and so forth. Yeah, there was a different boogeyman back then. But the other thing, too, obviously, when you... I mean, obviously, when it's time to just smash Arab resistance, the secular nationalists were broken much more easily. Obviously... If you are an Islamic fundamentalist and you think there are 72 virgins waiting for you in paradise if you do your duty, you're not really afraid of death the same way a secular-minded person is. That sort of puts them at an advantage. You can't. Then these jihadis, when they're sort of on the rise, 
then they gain the respect of the population at large because they are a much more effective resistance against the empire than the secular national forces which were sort of coerced or bought off. And, and one, one example that a lot of people are aware of is, is Al-Qaeda. There is a group that was created or, or was funded by the, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA of the United States. A group as, that a, obviously, as a guerrilla army to bog down the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Yeah, the boogeyman back then was the atheist communist, and we didn't want their empire to spread, so we're going to use the Islamic fundamentalists, we're going to prop them up and use them against them, but it, and then that's a group that obviously came back and bite us in the ass. Rambo was on the <laughs> Taliban side in one of his movies, I think. <laughs> and I think. I haven't seen any of them, but from what I understand, in like the third movie, I think, he was... I guess he was fighting with them. I don't know. <laughs> I think I remember that, actually. Fighting against he, the Soviets. He starts yeah. out right. with the, the Soviets come in with their helicopters. and yeah, I don't remember. You talk about the religious motivations that people in these Islamic fundamentalist groups have, but also when they become martyrs, people put up posters with their faces on them. Their families, are they're celebrated socially. There's lots of secular reasons as well why, why uh, martyrs are treated quite well and there's a lot of reasons why people do it other than just religious devotion i think the the fundamental problem in the united states is we see things like the 9-11 trade tower bombings we see terrorist acts that happen in the middle east we hear about embassies being bombed it's just very topical like when you're watching cnn or fox mm -hmm. news or any of those corporate owned news stations they don't talk about what caused the violence, what is angering these people where they want to attack the United States? It's interesting how there, there seems to be this correlation with if we even even just attempt to understand where all of this hatred comes from, even even just considering doing that. Then you are excusing it. Yeah, then, you are, then, then you are somehow justifying it. You're and you are saying, you are saying oh, 9-11 should have happened and we deserve it. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that people ever deserve to be killed by mass murder by planes bombs whatever i don't i don't think anybody deserves that but i i think that definitely the news organizations since they do claim to inform the people and then they they should have that role of informing the people i don't understand why when whenever we're watching any of this any of these stories there's not any adjunct programming that's talking about the issues, talking about what led up to this. They don't want you to know that. They want you to look at the American flag waving. They want patriotic fervor. They want unconditional support for the troops. They don't want anybody to question, it is something that America did? Is that what's causing all of this? Is, is um, American imperialism, is it causing some of the problems over here? And they certainly don't want any skepticism or any resistance to our proxies, like Israel, yeah. when they do such a damn good job of protecting our empire. And I mean, it's one of the, one of the more insidious and pervasive talking points in the, in the media when they talk about Israel-Palestine. Talk about them like it's a, they talk, I mean, they talk about it like it's a war. They talk about it like it's two, two sides, roughly equally matched, fighting a war. And it's not a war. I mean, it's a massacre. It's a one-way street here. And I mean, you know, I got some numbers, you know, going back to, you know, what's happening in Gaza this week, got some numbers from Reuters. I mean, right now, the death toll right now, 715 Palestinians, mostly civilians, 3,000 plus wounded. 
Israelis, 11 killed. Several dozen wounded. And of those 11 Israelis killed, 8 of them are soldiers involved in the invasion. And 4 of them were killed by their own comrades with friendly fire. I mean, that's the imbalance of power. There isn't exactly much fighting back going on from the Palestinians. Well, that's, that's where you see what Americans call terrorism, suicide bombing, using improv- uh, improvised weapons. We call it terrorism, but it's really just a poor people trying to use whatever means they have at hand to fight what they see as an, in- an invasion force, it's to more fight like, what they see as an occupation. It's more like what we have here is like an an army of, say, police officers who have who have cornered like a, a wild animal, a tiger or something, and and it, it can't escape, and like when it, it it will it will sort of try to fight back and maybe get in a few things, but eventually it gets shot to death. Do you have Israel backed fully by the United States with all of our superior weaponry, and then you have people that are left their only means of fighting back is the suicide bomb, or is the the random rocket attack into the city. It's all they have to fight with. Maybe now we need to talk about the double standard of terrorism because when a state massively kills people or bombs a large group of people, that's not terrorism. But when a single individual or small group does it, then it's called terrorism. The news stations use definitely use loaded language. You'll you'll see when Hamas or or if we even we don't even know if it's Hamas people that are using the rockets, but when a rocket is launched into Israel, it's, of course, it's terrorism. Mm. But when Israel bombs a marketplace, <laughs> shells a marketplace, and kills hundreds of people, that's just them retaliating mm. against terrorism. Well, we've seen that in the United States, calling incidents that have happened Islamic terrorism before people even knew what happened. Well, there's this insinuation that these terrorists, they're, they're uncivilized and they're barbaric, and, and, and even even the, the slightest thing they do is is somehow an indication of what they're capable of. And they're religious than, nuts, and they just want to kill us because we're not... Yeah, they're crazy. Islamic. Look look what they did. They blew some stuff up. We'd better just friggin' destroy them all so that yeah. they don't do worse. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking you know, the idea of, of terrorism and of state terrorism, and... I mean, there's lots of examples of Israeli state terrorism that, of course, you're never going to hear on CNN. You're never going to hear on Fox News. I'd like to share a little bit with you right now. There's a very common tactic in Gaza, the world's largest concentration camp, where the Israeli Air Force will fly its jet fighters over the Strip at a very low altitude just to terrify people with the noise. It's a sort of sonic boom torture. And commenting on this strategy... Then-Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmer, this is the head of the government, in a public statement, said, I want nobody to sleep at night in Gaza. You know, they do these almost 24 hours a day at times. How is that not terrorism? I want nobody to sleep at night in Gaza. He said that on July 3rd, 2006. Taking Taking that to its literal conclusion, people... Not being able to sleep at night, they're, they're they're probably more likely to become mentally unstable and hey, blow some shit up. We're seeing this practically indiscriminate violence in the Gaza Strip. Here's the thing: half of the population of the Gaza Strip are children. Half of the people who live there are under the age of 18. That's who these bombs are falling on. Back in 2006. Uh, Dr. Khalid Dalan reported that, quote, 99.4% of children we studied suffered trauma from this ongoing Israeli occupation. 
99.2% had had their home bombarded. 97.5% had been exposed to tear gas. 96.6% had witnessed shooting. And one-third of these children in the Gaza Strip had seen, personally seen, a family member or a neighbor injured or killed. But, but you know, they deserve it because... There's these people in their country that are firing rockets at Israel, so, of course. Well, it isn't, from, from, from a Western perspective and from an Israeli military perspective, it, 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 isn't, it isn't trauma, it's just unfortunate. <laughs> these things just happen. Collateral damage, Collateral you know, it's just damage. a fact of war. You know, sometimes a marketplace will be bombed and women will be killed and children and old people, and it's just a fact of war, you know, maybe if the, maybe if they weren't, crazy Muslim terrorists, they wouldn't be going to the market. And, and, and on, top, on top of that, there's the idea of, you know, we have to keep them in check. Mm. We, we have to, you know, it, it, isn't, it, is, it isn't, I mean, in, in, their, in their minds, it, it isn't like they're going, I'm a bully and I'm going to do all this shit. It, it's more, mm. although maybe some of them have gotten to that point, but from for, um, the, the widespread psychological angle on it is, is this is this is actually may not be enjoyable for me to do but we have to keep these people in check and make sure that they aren't fucking our shit up when you have a population that is that is terrorized i mean when they're when they're when they're flying those jets over yeah. keeping everybody up i mean they don't they don't see it as torture they they see it as they see it as you know we we have to keep people in line we have to to do what's necessary to maintain, uh, f from their point of view, our civilization, our dignity, or whatever. I don't. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people just fail to kind of use the old adage of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I mean, if you're if you're living in a uh, a country where you've seen violence all of your life, you've you've seen jets fly over, you've you've known people that have been killed, you've had neighbors that have been bombed, and you see this this group of people as uh, invaders and, and you know that they're driving your friends, your relatives, people you know off of their land and, and taking the land, which you know when Israel had occupied a lot of the Palestinian territories, they occupied Gaza and, and then they continued to control it after the fact when they moved out through blockades and things like that. When you have a population that is just terrorized like this, the only recourse that a lot of them see been fed up when they've had enough. The only recourse they see is to use take up arms and fight. To and the only way they know how to fight is to sometimes end their life, end their suffering, and, and take as many of the bastards down with them. And I know we've been focusing on Gaza here. The media has been focusing on Gaza over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, Israel also continues to occupy the West Bank, which is the other leading Palestinian territory. Obviously, that's. That's much more insidious. It's not nearly as photogenic, so it doesn't really get the same attention from the press. But, I mean, the, the West Bank is essentially being divided up into smaller and smaller little ghetto neighborhoods of Palestinians, cut off from each other by large Israeli highways and by these so-called settlements of these sort of fundamentalist Jewish settlers who are known for even... I mean, the Jewish religion is, is well known for, for, for stressing personal hygiene as part of your religious code. It's kind of an interesting example here of the sort of the relationship between Israeli and Palestinian. 
They say that in a lot of these settlements, they don't even the the Jews don't even bother to build sewage treatment plants. They just like to pump the stuff raw right into the Palestinian neighborhood right next to them. I mean, they're literally shitting on the Palestinian neighbors. The wall that's been created, I don't know if we've talked about that at all, the, this 20-foot concrete wall with razor wire, with guard towers, that's just blocked off one section of this land from the... cut off travel, cut off everything. And there's... if you if you look at it... Now, for those of you who've ever watched anything about this on CNN, it's called a security yeah. fence. But if you if you look at it from an aerial photograph, you'll see... The Palestinian territories in complete squalor, mm. poverty, people living in, in shacks, and then you look at the other side of the wall and you, there's prosperity, there's how, large houses, suburbs. It just really shows you the division between these people, how the conditions are so different that these people live in. And a lot of it's due, a lot of the economic mm. despair is due to the, the blockades and the, and the blocking of the materials that that's much needed and people are cut off from jobs they can't work jobs anymore because of the walls and this security fence as it's called in the corporate media i mean it is it's a wall and for a point of reference it's actually significantly taller deeper and thicker than the infamous berlin wall in occupied germany that's something like 3 feet thick i would like to know how what would have to happen then for peace to happen in this place, this horrible, awful place? What are leaders and officials, are they working really hard at doing it? Because, you know, I saw Condoleezza Rice on TV. She was talking about how we're going to fix this whole deal. Well, you know, obviously the imperial planners in Washington and their proxy army out of Tel Aviv, Israel, they have a conception of peace, which is basically... I mean, it's the peace of genocide. As far as they're concerned, there'll be peace when the Palestinian people are wiped off the face of the earth. And really, obviously, what we're sort of arguing for from the other side is the idea of, of peace with justice, of these people having these people having basic rights of freedom, having a right not to have, you know, not to have these damned Israeli jets running sonic booms over your house in the middle of the night to cause you sleep deprivation to make your children go deaf. To tie this back a little closer to our culture within the United States, this is the kind of peace that we have with the Native American people in our country. Yeah. It's the same thing happening that's, somewhere else. That's the sort of peace that they want over there. They want the Palestinians to go to their little areas. Where they have none of the resources. Yeah. Israel can build oh, that, these huge yeah. walls, they're huge gated communities, and they can live in prosperity, and then these people can just be pushed off, and we can forget about them. Well, given, given the, given the we'll conditions... We'll just them out whenever you need some cheap labor. Yeah. Given the conditions over there, e even that is basically wiping them out, because <laughs> they're not going to survive over there. Yeah. I mean, you could really term it a genocide by blocking food, medical aid... By pushing these people further and further off of their land, it's really like, really is, there's a lot of similarities between the United States and its war with the, with the American Indians. Well, the United States uh, used biological warfare, and what is forcing the Palestinian people to live in basically sewage than the same Bio sort of unsanitary yeah. conditions? There's sort of this debate over whether or not you can use the term genocide 
with both of these instances, with uh, with the American Indians and also with the Palestinians, when you look at it, there are actually people. There were people on the on the United States side that their goal was to exterminate as many na uh, Native Americans as possible, and there were other people that had the goal in mind to just push them onto their own areas and we can forget about them. And it's the same thing over there in Israel. You have people that really do have in mind they want to exterminate these people. You know, they see them all as terrorists, and then there's also the people that also want to just push them onto their own areas. And we got about 10 minutes left here, so I want to take on I want to take on one more myth before we run out of time here. I'm mean, obviously going back to the corporate media spin on this whole thing. Obviously this idea you know that Israel is somehow just or fair and it's just they they only sort of resort to these atrocities when they're provoked. And really, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the ceasefire between the state of Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip that's been sort of ballyhooed a lot about in the media. I mean, the truth is, Israel never fully honored the ceasefire. They never did. One of the terms of this ceasefire was they were supposed to, quote-unquote, unseal the border. I break down that concentration camp aspect and allow these people to move freely. They never allowed that. You know, in addition to keeping them in the keeping them in their little ghetto and not allowing their kids to go to college when they were accepted, I mean, obviously they're, I mean, they're they're blocking imports. They're not letting them get the fuel, as I talked about earlier. And actually, according to Anna Baltzer again, two hundred and sixty-two Palestinians in the Gaza Strip died during the ceasefire period from improper medical supplies. Medical supplies they should have had, but the Israeli army wouldn't have let in, allowed 262 people to die. I mean, that's still, that's still low-intensity warfare there. You know, even back November, during November 5th and 6th, about a month and a half before this really heated up, the Israeli military killed six people in Gaza. I mean, there's a point where Israel actually goes out and actually tries to start a fight to spark a retaliation that will allow them to attack much more aggressive. Well, I, I see a sort of double standard here. Now, going around and killing people, that's horrible, but not allowing resources and medication and killing millions and thousands of people in different regions in the world, well, that's just a fact of life. And I mean, even, even that double standard aside, though, when that wasn't enough to provoke Hamas to fight back, when their people were being starved to death, were, you know, up to their knees in garbage were dying from treatable diseases in hospitals because they had no medicine, because their hospital had no electricity. Israel actually bombed the only power plant in Gaza two years ago. I mean, how's that for collective punishment? When that's not enough to make Hamas fight back, then you let your military get trigger happy. I mean, you do whatever it takes to get them to fight back. Because then they throw a rock, your soldiers open fire with M16s. They fire a mortar... You start firing missiles and dropping bombs from your F-16s. Well, I'm thinking of the protest on Wednesday when there was two people out there, and one of them had what about what about Arab aggression? What about Arab aggression? Okay, these people are living in these conditions over there where you know their children aren't getting medical treatment. They don't have enough to eat. They don't have food. They don't have clean water, and it's all because of the Israeli occupation. They're blocking this much needed resource these much needed resources is is it really aggression there's a lot of attention on this part of the world right now a lot of people are paying attention 
No one cared before. No one cared when people were just slowly dying of disease and slowly dying because they didn't have clean water. Mm-hmm. But now, because there's this conflict over there, everyone is paying attention. Is it is it really an aggression when you're fighting back against something like that, this insidious form of terrorism, the slow terrorism that the Israelis are using on this population? And obviously, I mean, the, the public attention that this is drawing, I think, is probably what's motivating a lot of imperial planners in Washington and their proxies in Israel to think of new ceasefire terms. They want to yeah. quietly pull this down off the headline page and obviously sort of restore it back to that kind of low-intensity warfare is sort of what some of this stuff is typically euphemistically yeah. referred well, to sort of ceasefires, the things that they do, that's a way to put a good face on empire. I think it's important to once again stress these all, all these things we've been talking about this you know we were just talking about this sort of provocation and like really everything we've been talking about this isn't this isn't just even even if you recognize that all of this is is actually happening we're doing all these terrible things it, it it isn't it isn't just this one little thing that uh the western empire is doing just in this one instance this is business as usual throughout the entire world. We're just talking about it because it happens to be a hot topic at the moment. The the only way, I think, to achieve a relative amount of peace right now over there would be for Israel to recognize Palestinian Palestinian territory, back off of the territory that that they've taken, that they've stolen from people, allow these people to come back to their homes. And it's just a mess over there. I don't know how... There's ever going to be a settlement agreed upon where where both of these two groups can have their own land and survive together peacefully. It's 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 a mess. I think we have to go back to the point of that's not what the empire wants. The empire doesn't want groups of people that have any sort of say in what happens in that region whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So once once again, we we have to come to the conclusion that we come to at every single <laughs> show that we do, which is that peace isn't peace is not going to come about. I mean, an actual civilized, dignified peace that you were alluding to earlier is not going to come about anywhere in the world unless the world changes is, is completely overhauled, uh, p- particularly the Western interests and imperialism particularly United States. This conversation spiraling into a very dark place. I do actually have a couple of things as I that always, I came up with. As I people, always take it into. You know, I mean, for people who want to do something about this, obviously, for those of you who are interested in opening up your wallet and contributing something to alleviating that sheer Palestinian misery... There are organizations out there that are contributing direct aid to the Gaza Strip. You can look up the United Nations Relief and Works Agency at www.un.org slash unrwa. Or you can find a larger list of organizations to support at http colon slash slash gazasiege.org slash support underscore gaza.html. I guess I would just say, you know, sort of the question of how how can there be peace in in Israel Palestine and well, what mean, are, what are the tech, what are the technicalities of what would have to happen for that to come about? Well, the first thing that has to happen, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, is that U.S. military aid to Israel has to stop. 
And the second thing that has to happen is that the U.S. has to stop offering complete, blanket, unconditional diplomatic cover to Israel. The international community has been very markedly against what Israel is doing in the West Bank and Gaza practically from the beginning of 1967. The UN has an annual resolution against the occupation, which, you know, always fails when the United States votes against it and banishes it from history. I mean, obviously, as, as long as the empire wants that beachhead and the Israelis are the competent enforcers of that beachhead, I don't think anything will ever change. So I guess we have to just keep being an ulcer in the belly of this imperial beast. And on that cheerful note, we are out of time. For Brian, Andrew, and Monty, I'm Jackson. I'll see you on the streets on Saturday, and you can hear another one of these shows in about a week or so. Thanks. Goodbye.